The Lodge by Robert McMinn Chapter 17 On the way back to the lodge, I stopped at a fast food restaurant on the main road and wolfed down a burger and fries in the car sitting in the car park. Then I drove home. Once again, the house was lit up like Gatsby's place when I arrived. I knew I didn't leave all those lights on. I simply wasn't in the mood to deal with that shit again and almost turned the car around to find a hotel. Then I thought about how we were hemorrhaging money, what with all the refunds, and still paying Abby and Mrs Moffat, so I took a deep breath and went in. It turned out that the lights were on because people had arrived. Both Kate and Martin had keys to the house, and they had both independently decided to take some time off work and drive up to be with their mum. I was so happy to see them, it took all my strength not to cry in front of them. This was not toxic masculinity, I hastened to add. I just didn't want to make it all about me. It so happened that Beth arrived not long after I did, so we all sat in the kitchen drinking cocoa and talking. I filled them in on as much of the story as I could. I didn't hold anything back. Both of the kids and Beth were aware of the various things that had been going on in the house. I played down the abject terror I'd felt on finding myself locked in the stairwell with the unconscious Grace. I didn't want to go to bed, neither did they, so we sat up long into the night. Eventually, however, I knew I'd be useless on the following day without a few hours sleep, so I reluctantly dragged myself up. In the night, I woke once to the sound of voices, but I told myself it was just Martin and Kate still talking. The next time I woke, it was to the sound of the telephone ringing. I picked it up, noting the time, 8am, and said a groggy hello. It was the hospital, with bad news. Grace had not regained consciousness and had died in the night. I dropped the phone on the floor and fell back on the bed, staring at the ceiling. There was a knock on the bedroom door and Kate came in looking wan and asking what the call had been. When I didn't answer, she sat on the end of the bed and said, Mum's dead, isn't she? Martin arrived. Seeing the desolation in the room, he didn't even have to ask. He just fell to his knees, saying, Fuck. Meanwhile, a voice on the phone was trying to get my attention. Kate stood, walked around to the phone and held it to her ear. She answered in monosyllables and then disconnected the call. I knew she had gone, she said. I woke in the night and she was standing at the end of my bed. What? This from an incredulous Martin. I don't think Martin ever quite got over the fact that his mother hadn't gone to him. She stood at the end of the bed and I was awake and could see her, but I couldn't move or speak. She held her finger to her lips and smiled. Then she pointed over my head and nodded her head. Why did she do that? I think she was telling me to look after Dad. By this time, Beth was up and standing in the doorway, listening to the conversation. After hearing this, she turned away. I will never know how I got through that morning. My arms and legs felt numb, my face felt numb, and I felt as if I would never want to speak again. When Kate and Martin went off to get dressed, I dragged myself out of bed and into the shower, then got dressed as if in a dream. 
nobody could eat, and nobody felt like making tea. Martin drove us all over to the hospital, where we were told it was too late to see Grace's body. I didn't want to see it anyway, so I didn't make a fuss. There had been times when I had thought that the story would end with the two of us running screaming out of the house at about two in the morning. That was my greatest fear, even at the point when the boggle or whatever it was seemed playful. I mean, we've all seen the movies. It's always playful, to begin with. After Grace died, I look back on that greatest fear with something like nostalgia. Oh, how I wish we could have run out of the house together in abject terror. Kate stayed with me for a month. She did look after me. She helped me get through the police interviews. They did call me in after the funeral. There had been a post-mortem. I went in with a solicitor. I really was afraid of being bounced into jail, as I suspect Grace's uncle Alec had been. They were all sniffy about it, of course, said it made me look guilty and that if I had nothing to hide, I wouldn't need a solicitor. Tell that to the Birmingham Six. I just stonewalled them. I knew I wasn't guilty and I also came of age in the 1980s, the miners' strike and all that. In truth, I've always hated and never trusted the police. I even had a head teacher once who was ex-police and he was the biggest arsehole I've ever had to work under. So I felt fine about going in with a solicitor and giving them a statement of the facts and no more. They tried all that, oh, you don't seem very upset, nonsense. All that, your reaction doesn't seem normal. I just quoted them chapter and verse on shock and grief and all the myriad reactions people have to it, which they well knew. And I let them know that I would never forgive them for putting me through that interrogation. It wasn't even about the when. I'm not making any special pleading about not talking to me when I'm grieving. It was just the what of it. That sense that they thought they were in some kind of TV drama. That they were going to crack the case. It's always the husband. Which is where we came in, I think. Kate eventually had to go back to her life. I stopped taking bookings and moved into the stables, which was, well, which was a lot less haunted but I also wanted to move away which was always how this thing was going to end if I could have afforded it I would have burned the place to the ground not for the insurance but just to watch it burn I would have to get my satisfaction some other way I thought of bequeathing it in Grace's name to the University of Edinburgh parapsychology department but we had put too much of our retirement savings into the renovation of the bedrooms and I needed to recoup some of it if I was going to have a decent quality of life. I was prepared to let it go, cheap. I didn't really want to profit from the experience. At the same time, it was important not to brazenly squander the kids' inheritance. In the end, we advertised it as a haunted house, and of course the viewers flocked around. I left all the showings to the estate agent who was able to talk about the man in the upper hallway, the cold spot the banging and knocking without having experienced it for real, so a bit of distance was achieved. Most of the viewers were rubberneckers, of course, but it did sell, in time, and there was a reasonable amount of money, which I eventually split between Kate and Martin. I sold the stable separately. 
I could have gone on living there, but I didn't want to look out of the window and see the place that had killed my grace. She was cremated. I threw the ashes away. It was what we had talked about, both of us. Too much memorialising of the dead, we said. Too many memories, too many people hanging around when they're supposed to have moved on. Life is for the living. It's what we both believed. We talked about it on one of those long, disturbed nights that we had. Promise me, she said, that you won't come back and haunt me if you die first. I held up my hand like a boy scout. I so promise, I said, now you. So she did. Which is why she went to see Kate on the night that she died, and not me. I don't know why she didn't say goodbye to Martin, though Martin was far more sceptical than Kate. I'd have been with him all the way in that, except I did see what I did see. So maybe he just wasn't receptive to the incorporeal. I do think he was a little estranged from Kate for a while, feeling abandoned by his mother, which made me sad. But you don't want to hear about all those months of sadness, and I don't want to talk about it. Needless to say, I was on autopilot for a good few months. I was like the rumba. I'd eat for fuel, I'd do what needed to be done, and I'd get up in the morning and keep myself clean and shaved and moving. But I don't really remember doing any of it. I waited till the big house was sold, as I said, then put the stables and the woods on the market. It was a much quicker sale, and then... I bought myself a small bungalow down in Kent, near Hearn Bay. Once I got the proceeds from the stables, I restored the equilibrium of my retirement savings and gave the balance to the kids. Far better they should have the money, while they were young enough to do something with it. I wanted them to stay in touch, but didn't make it part of the deal, just... Fingers crossed. I'm about five minutes from Herne Bay and about 15 from the seafront in Whitstable. 30 minutes if I cycle. The bungalow backs onto fields. There are some farm buildings there and there are woods nearby that I can walk through and pick up dead wood for the fire. There are bluebells in spring and ants' nests up to your shoulders. I've seen red squirrels and woodpeckers and even a lost stork. I've got three bedrooms, which was a choice so there would always be somewhere for Martin and Kate, their families, if they wanted to come down. I also hope that being near the sea might encourage a few visits. I've got no right to expect anything. I'm not their actual dad. There's a greenhouse in the garden, which I'm not currently doing anything with, and there's a tool shed and a woodshed. Nowhere near as much wood, but it's all still free, and I've got enough that I can let it season properly and not be a bad citizen burning wet wood. The garden is small, and nothing has come to the fence except some of the cows looking for dandelions. I still talk to Grace. No stairs to fall down, I said the first time I looked around the place. I know we agreed we wouldn't haunt each other, but I do sometimes feel that warmth, that glow of love around me that I've come to recognise as her. I've been using this back bedroom for writing and painting when I feel like it. The room backs onto the field and the sun shines through in the morning, then moves around the house to the living room by the afternoon. I tend to write in the morning and then if I paint, it's in the afternoon when there's no longer direct sunlight. I was sitting in here 
the other day, my back to the door, facing the window, and I felt her, behind me, that steady presence, which became a burst of warmth. It's the same as I felt in the studio that time, the same feeling and the same presence. I've come to believe that Grace's spirit is kind of unstuck in time, which is how she came to me before she'd even died. And the night she did die, the presence in the bedroom that had exerted pressure on me to get up and follow, maybe that was her too. If you've listened this far, you'll be wanting an explanation, some kind of haunted history of the lodge. Grace had amassed a lot of research material, but none of it really helped to understand what was going on. There had once been a tower. The original house was built around the tower. Some of it had been knocked down and rebuilt at a later stage. Then there were extensions and additions. One family owned it for a long time and then lost all their money. Then there was another family who also ended up losing their money. So people have come and gone with the centuries and plenty of them were unhappy. But the thing I'm never sure of, were they unhappy because they lost everything or did they lose everything because the house brought them bad luck or pushed them into making bad decisions? Anyway, there might be a ghost or two who belonged to a family who lost everything. Some of them might even be angry. But then there was the donkey, which was sometimes a scarecrow and once was a black dog and the woman we saw near the ruined chapel. I can't explain any of it. All I can think is that the place itself had some magnetic power to draw spirits. The river, the old stone bridge, the patterns and shapes of the old pathways, and how they crossed and looped over the land. A strange attractor for lost souls. Some people have asked me, why didn't you call in a medium, someone to rid the house of spirits? Yes, well, you find me one of those people who isn't a charlatan and then you find me the time machine and maybe we'll go back and do something about it. I expressed my thanks and regrets to Mrs Moffat and Abby, told them I was always happy to write a letter of recommendation, paid them a month's wages and said goodbye. Mrs Moffat was always turning work down so she was going to be okay and Abby fell on her feet, a smart girl, and she'd added some good notes on her CV. All those boxes had to come down from the loft again, the ones that had never been unpacked. This time I was moving to a much smaller house, so I had to be ruthless. Everything is pared down to the basics. My new kitchen was about a quarter of the size of the one at the lodge, and there were fewer rooms. Martin and Kate helped me move, another Luton box van, and a long drive back to the south, even further than where we'd lived before. But it was just the one trip. Everything else was auctioned or left with the house. Martin, it had been, who had climbed the ladder into the crawl space to fetch things down. There was a light up there now, some extra boards and everything was behaving as it should. He came across the chest, the one that had been there when we moved in. I was going to tell him to leave it for the next person, an intriguing antique. But then I had second thoughts. Bring it down, I said, and then we carried it outside to the garden, made a pile of old sticks that were not worth cutting for logs, and we burned it. If I couldn't burn the house, then at least I could burn some of its history. 
I've no idea who that chest belonged to or why it was left there, but it all went up in smoke. I looked back at the house while I was burning it and said, I hope this is your heart and soul. Who knows, maybe it was. Maybe all the spirits went up in the cleansing fire that day and the new owners were left in peace. I hope they were. Maybe they'd have been disappointed. This is a lovely spot where I live. I wish we could have retired down here in the first place. We didn't even get a chance to discuss such a possibility. I wish Grace's aunt and her dysfunctional family had never impinged upon our lives. This area reminds me of where I grew up. I'm in my 60s now, but when I get on my bike and freewheel down the long country lane under the tree cathedral on the way to Whitstable, I feel 14 again. Sometimes I take my feet from the pedals and make an A-shape with my legs, and sometimes I lean back on the saddle and ride no-handed for hundreds of metres in the dappled sunlight. And as I get closer to the main road, I can hear Grace's voice in my head telling me to settle down and stop being a kid. <laughs>